This is the Read Your Bible Podcast, the daily podcast designed to help you understand and apply the scriptures. Nothing will grow your relationship with Jesus Christ more than studying the Bible for yourself. I'm your host, Drew Tankersley, and for the next few moments, I want to invite you to join me as we dive into God's Word together. We'll ask God to help us see what He wants us to see so that we can be who He wants us to be. The nephew of Nero, Caligula, was one of the most eccentric and bizarre leaders in all of history. He once had his army build a two-mile floating bridge just so he could ride on it. In another deranged episode, he once commanded his soldiers to plunder the sea by gathering seashells in their helmets all afternoon. He banned the mention of goats in his presence and practiced facial expressions to terrify his enemies. He built a lavish home for his horse and tried to appoint the steed to the high office of consul before he was eventually assassinated. Few leaders are more bizarre than this colorful character, but no episode is more enigmatic than the events described for us in Daniel chapter 4. They teach us a valuable lesson about how pride makes us beasts and that humility embodies the proper perspective of both greatness and power. Look at verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4 today. This word is by decree of the watchers, and the decision is by command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants and sets the lowliest of people over them. It's one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar is one of the most influential kings in the Old Testament and founder of one of the greatest kingdoms of the earth, Babylon. But in this chapter, he's taught a hard lesson on who raises up kings and who tears them down. The chapter revolves around a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but the context for that dream in chapter 4 is actually the dream that he had in chapter 2. In that chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but he couldn't remember it, just that he was troubled by it. So he demands the wise men, sorcerers, magicians, and advisors to interpret his dream and then tell him what the dream was. When they can't do this, Nebuchadnezzar becomes violently angry, so angry, in fact, that he demands that they all be killed. When Daniel, who was completing his education after being exiled from Judah to Babylon, is summoned as well to be killed because he was in line to be one of these wise men, he requests the king give him more time to pray to his God for the dream and its interpretation. At the edge of a sword, as it were, the Lord provides the king with the dream and its interpretation through his true prophet, Daniel. The dream is of a statue with a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, thighs of bronze, and feet of iron. And then the iron is mixed with clay. Suddenly, a stone, not made with hands, comes and crushes the feet of the idol, dashing the whole monument to the ground. When Daniel interprets the dream, we learn that each section of the idol represents a kingdom. The gold represents Babylon. The silver represents the king that would topple Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. Following the Persian Empire, 
The bronze represents Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire that would rule the world following the Persians. And then finally, the Roman Empire would be depicted by the feet and would rule the world until the time of Christ. Then that empire would change to a mixture of iron and clay, which signified really a period of division. Eventually, the kingdom inaugurated at the resurrection of Jesus will forever destroy the manufactured power of human empires and be eclipsed by the spiritual kingdom that was to come and her king, King Jesus. The message from this vision is undeniable. God sets up kingdoms and tears them down at his bidding to accomplish his divine purposes. Now, had Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson in chapter 2 and humbled himself before the king of heaven, then chapter 4 and its events might not have even transpired. But instead of acknowledging the king of heaven as lord over all, the next chapter, chapter 3, finds Nebuchadnezzar setting up his own golden monument, much like the vision of chapter 2 with one notable exception. As I said, the entire statue was gold. There was no recognition of any other power. The text clearly outlines that Nebuchadnezzar is the one that set this thing up. Then he demanded forced worship in an act to consolidate his power. Now this idolization is the petty attempt of a human king to reject the vision given to him by a sovereign God. Instead of God setting up kings and tearing them down, which was the vision of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is now setting up gods and demanding worship as a god himself. Even after he sees God's powers displayed with the rescue of the three Hebrew boys who remain faithful to God and refuse to worship the statue, even after all of that, Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance continues. Chapter 4 opens with the lesson learned from the events that transpire. It is a proclamation given following the dream and the deranged fulfillment that we'll read of in the rest of the chapter. Since Nebuchadnezzar obviously did not realize the lesson taught to him in chapter 2 regarding God's kingly authority over humanity, God revisits the issue with him in chapter 4. And in a way, it is an act of divine grace to give the king another chance to recognize Jehovah's authority. And it will be an episode to remember for the king and for us. King Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of a great tree that is cut down to a stump. Now we learn that this tree is enormous. It extends up to the heavens. It gives food to the world, shade to the animals, a home to the birds. And then suddenly an angel comes and strikes the tree, cutting it down but leaving the stump. Now, it must have taken incredible courage for Daniel to tell the king that this tree was, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar and that God was about to cut him down to size, quite literally. Daniel tells the king that he will live apart from people for seven periods or seven years. The king will become like an animal whose hair and nails will grow long. He will eat grass like a cow and will become like the beast of the field. And then Daniel pleads with the king to repent of his arrogance, and perhaps God might grant him mercy. But Nebuchadnezzar's pride knows no bounds. He rejects Daniel's the prophet's pleadings altogether. 
Well, the text tells us that a full 12 months transpire since the vision, and then the faithful day in question happens. We read in verse 29, At the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, the king explained, Is this not Babylon the Great that I have built to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? At this, the word of the Lord came to pass. He was driven away from people to live like a wild animal. The servants fed him grass like a cow for seven years until he acknowledged that according to verse 32, the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. At this admission, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity and his kingdom are restored. Now can you just imagine being the greatest empire to rule the world at that time? And they have as their leader for seven years a deranged king that is fully convinced that he's a cow. And yet that's exactly what happens. And this is what arrogance does to us. It turns us into animals. In our own lives, we've all experienced large doses of humble pie. And this is really an act of grace. Sure, it can be painful to be cut down to size, to have our arrogance cut down by the swift act of God's retribution. It can be difficult at times in our own lives when we have to learn to scrape to get by for a season. But it is in those moments of humbling that God reminds us more fully than ever that we are in his hands. He gives and he takes away and he is the one who provides for us, not our ingenuity, not our ability, not our acumen. Nebuchadnezzar is forced to live outside in the backyard, in the pasture, for seven years. Seven is the number of completion, of perfection. And so God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know, to fully know, that he was the one who sets up kingdoms and tears them down. This recognition is often the silver lining to our humbling difficulty. God is the one who sustains us. We only understand this fully in this season of humility. When all the props that hold up our delusions that we are masters of our own fate are removed, we become wholly dependent on the God that we should have recognized all along. We're also reminded that our leadership is a stewardship for which we will be held accountable. God had given Nebuchadnezzar tremendous power for his own purposes, not for Nebuchadnezzar to gloat in all that he had done. Our leadership is a stewardship for which we will be held accountable. God will hold us responsible for what we do with the influence with which he has entrusted us. Now, if we use that stewardship as a monument of our own greatness, we become trees ripe for the cutting. We have to remember that God gives us management of the influence to leverage for his purposes. We dare not use it for selfish gain, for it will only be for a season, and we will be held accountable for how we have used it. We have to redeem the time that we have been given and be faithful with it. The seasons from which God wrestles that leadership and that leverage away from us then are not intended to harm us, 
but to remind us and remind us fully of the fact that God is in charge of every season and we will be held accountable for whatever influence he chooses to give us. And it is a privilege to be granted that influence. And we have to use it to point people to God, not to foolishly exalt ourselves as Nebuchadnezzar did. It's clear that God had given this king his power and he could just as easily remove it from him if his arrogance persisted. This lesson in humility we all should learn before we find ourselves howling at the moon as well. So Jesus, help us to remember today that leadership, leverage, influence, they're all gifts from you and not for us to use for our benefit. Help us to leverage every one of them for your glory. For you put us in that season for that amount of time and we need to use that influence rightly. Forgive us when we've taken it for granted and you had to cut down the tree and leave the stump. Help us to live to make Jesus proud of what we do with the influence that he gave us. And when you take it away from us, help us to remind ourselves of what that humility teaches us, that you are in charge of all things. And may we understand that every season and every ounce of influence is borrowed. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today for the Read Your Bible podcast. For show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Join us again tomorrow as together we help you learn to read your Bible.